Well, in 1855, there was an 18-year-old young man who went to see the leaders of a church in Boston asking to join the church. He had been raised without knowing much about the Bible, but one day a Sunday school teacher from that particular church had come into the place where he was a clerk and had shared the good news of the gospel, how Jesus had died to pay the penalty of death for this young man's sins, and he in turn accepted the Lord as his Savior. And as the church leaders talked with this young man, they found he knew very little, not just about the Bible, but about education in general. Uh, He could barely read. His grammar was atrocious. He had only finished the fourth grade. So what they decided to do was put him on a year-long training program, not only to teach him about the Bible, but to help him grow in these other areas. And at the end of the year, a second interview showed there had only been minimal improvement. But since he was a committed and devoted believer, uh, they welcomed him into membership at the church. Years later, his Sunday school teachers said of him, I think the committee of the church seldom met an applicant for membership who seemed more unlikely to ever become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any space of public or extended usefulness. Many who met this man wrote him off, but God never did. And through God's transforming power, Dwight L. Moody became one of the most significant servants of God in all of church history. And today, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago bears his name where some of the best and brightest Christian leaders are trained for service. One of the truths of Scripture is that when God looks at us, he doesn't just see us as we are, but he sees us for who we can be. Who we can be as he comes into our life, as he transforms us. When we give our lives to God, he takes us where we are with all of our limitations, our weaknesses, our failures and doubts, And he grows us into what we can be. As we turn in our Bible today to Judges chapter 6, we're going to be looking at the life of a man by the name of Gideon. And as we're going to see today and over the next couple of weeks, because the next three chapters of Judges talk about this man, how God changed him and used him in great ways. As Judges chapter 6 begins, we're given the background to the the time in which he lived as verses 1 through 6 tell us this. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains, in the caves, and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with with their livestock, their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and the camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now if you were here last week, you'll remember in chapter 5, we saw the land was at rest for 40 years. They've had peace in the land, but then, as we've seen all throughout Judges, there's this sad, this sad cycle where the people will fall back into sin. And because of that, God allows them to go into a time of captivity and oppression. There's slavery in the land as God is disciplining his people to drive them back. And this time we see it's the Midianites that God allows to come in and oppress Israel. The Midianites were a nation of desert nomads. They were actually half-brothers to the Hebrews. As you look in Genesis 25, it says that Midian was a son of Abraham by Katona. 
In Exodus 2.15, we see that Moses lived among the Midianites for 40 years. He married uh, Zipporah, who was one of the daughters of Jethro, who, according to Exodus 3.1, was a Midianite priest. And by the time we come to Numbers chapter 22, the Israelites and the Midianites are at war. And here we find that, again, as the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the sons of the east come against Israel. Now, in chapter 5, you'll remember we saw that the enemy possessed this fearsome top-of-the-line military weapon called the Iron Chariot. And here in Judges 6, we see and are introduced to another top-of-the-line military weapon called the Camel. Now, in our day of modern weapons, we may think, well, what's so fearsome about a Camel? What made this such a strategic weapon? Well, the reason the Camel was so fearsome is it allowed the enemy to travel up to about 20 miles a day. And because camels can go three to four days without food or water, they were able to cross this barren desert area that had been a a barrier to invasion in the land. And as they come in, as these armies descend and these famished camels come into the land, they gorge themselves on the the land that Israel had cultivated. Anything that they couldn't take back, uh, they destroyed, leaving the land devastated to the point where it's described as a horde of locusts that have come in and stripped the land barren. Israel was helpless to resist these invaders, so they literally take to the hills. They not only hid themselves, but what little produce they could salvage in cracks and caves. And when the enemy would leave, Israel would come back down to the valley areas. They would recultivate the land. And when it was time for the next harvest, the enemy would descend again and steal everything. And this goes on for seven years. And finally, Israel hits bottom. The people are flat on their backs. They look up, they see God, and they turn back to him, and they cry out for help. Verses 7 through 10 tell us, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So we've gone through Judges. You've probably memorized this cycle by now. There's the sin that leads to slavery. Then they cry out to God in supplication, which is what we read here. God responds in his mercy and grace by raising up a deliverer, somebody to save the people, which then leads to a time of peace. But then, as we just read, Israel has gone right back into this time of sin. They've turned their back on God again. And as God raises up this prophet to come, I want you to see there's something a little different in the cycle this time. Because as we're reading this passage, notice that as God sends this prophet to the people, it's not to announce their deliverance, but instead he delivers a message of indictment. What he says to them is, you have turned from God, you've turned to sin, and now you're crying out. But as you cry out, it's not in repentance, it's in regret. And what you want is relief. God tells us in Second Chronicles seven thirteen through 14, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. You know, we love to quote that verse, don't we? 
But how many of us skip right over that part where it says, and turn from their wicked ways? Repentance is where we have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repentance is a word that describes a literal U-turn in your thinking that leads to a U-turn in the way you live your life. It describes how when we're walking with God, when we're in fellowship with him, we're here. But when we walk away from God and we go into sin, we're going down the wrong road. And what we do is we realize, hey, I'm going the wrong way. And repentance is where we stop. We turn around and we leave that sin we were going in and we come back to fellowship with God. And this is what is being described here. Sin at its, at its root is breaking fellowship and leaving God. And repentance is where the people would have stopped moving away from God. They would have abandoned the pagan worship, the, abandoned their sin, and come back to God. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about this in verse 25. But as you look at verse 25, uh, there in Judges 6, you see there is still active pagan worship taking place in the land. In fact, what's highlighted there is that there are even pagan shrines in the backyard of Joash. Now, why is Joash so important to highlight? Well, he's Gideon's father. Gideon's own father has pagan shrines in the family's backyard. In the book, Why Prayers Are Unanswered, Norman Vincent Peale tells of a time he was a young man and he found a cigar. And, and Peale said he picked up this cigar, he carried it around with him, and one day he went into the back alley uh, behind his house and he lit it up and started smoking it. Now, Norman Vincent Peale said it didn't taste very good, but it made him feel really grown up until he suddenly saw his father coming down the alley. And at that point, he panicked. He didn't know what to do, and he smashed out the cigar, and as his dad was approaching, he held it behind his back. Now, his father came walking up to him and started talking to him, and uh, he was desperate to divert his dad's attention, so he, he saw this billboard that was advertising the circus that was coming to town. And so he points at the billboard and he says, Dad, Dad, the circus is coming. Can, can we go? Will you take me to the circus? And uh, Peel said that his father said something to him that he never forgot. He said, Son, never make a petition while at the same time trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. <laughs> I wonder how many of us that describes this morning. How many of us are talking to God and asking for help? asking him to change our circumstances, asking him to change our country and the trajectory and all the things that we see happening in the world, but at the same time, we're hiding a smoldering disobedience that we haven't really turned from our sin. We haven't really turned away from the, the wicked ways that we're walking in. When God says he will heal our land, when his people pray, he says, you need to have repentance. You need to turn. You need to come back to me. You need to make me truly the throne of your life and the center of your country. And as God is calling his people to true repentance here, we see that he still is moved by his mercy and his great grace, his long-suffering love for us because he raises up a deliverer for them as we see in verses 11 through 12. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now, people who understood the culture of the day would laugh at that last statement where God is calling him a valiant warrior. 
And the reason for that is the way that grain was normally threshed is it was done on a threshing floor like you see in this picture. It would be a flat area high up on the uh, hillside that had a stone base. They would spread out the sheaves of grain, and then they would run what they called threshing sledges over it. It was uh, dragged over the grain, and it had metal or rocks or things that would break open the, the grain heads. And then they would take these winnowing forks, and they throw the, the stuff in the air. And the wind would come along and blow the, uh, the, the chaff away, and the, the grain, which is heavier, falls back to the floor, where ultimately it would then be swept up, bagged, and, and harvested that way. And as you look at verse 11, what you see is Gideon isn't high up on a hill in full view of others. Instead, he's in something called a wine press. And here you see uh, an example of that. You find these all over Israel. This is an ancient wine press. It's normally found in the uh, vineyard down in the lowest spot. It's a shaded area because you didn't want the sun to be um, evaporating the wine as you were crushing out the grape juice. It would flow down that channel. It would be collected. And so the picture here is that as people hear Gideon being greeted as a valiant warrior, they would laugh because a valiant warrior would be in a watchtower high up on a hill where everybody could see him. But instead, Gideon is hiding down in a hole in the ground, beating out handfuls of grain, hoping just to, to scrounge a, a handful of grain looking like a, scout, a, a scared coward. As you think about that, that picture of Gideon, I want to remind you again that God doesn't just see us the way we are. God looks at us and he sees us for who we can become when we trust in him. You know, the world likes to label us and say, I see your flaws. I see your failures. I see the ways you, you don't measure up with others who are around you. But what God says is, I see who you are and your possibilities. I just don't see problems I, I see the possibility. I see what you can be when you come to me. The scriptures are full of pictures of people that the world would write off, but God chose and raised up. Think of 1 Samuel 16 where Israel was choosing a king. And as the, the sons were gathered together, uh, Samuel the prophet is there and the, the oldest walks in. He's this big, burly, good-looking, strapping man and and he thinks, surely this is the guy. And God says, I haven't chosen him. And each of the sons walks by from oldest down to youngest. And ultimately, God says, I haven't chosen any of these. And he says, is, is this all your boys? And he says, oh, why? I've got David. David's the run of the litter. He's out in the field. He's this, you know, youngest, smallest, still kind of an adolescent. And God said, that is the new king. Go get him. And he was raised up. Think of Peter. Peter was known for acting impulsively. Peter was unstable, but Jesus said, you're the rock. You're the rock that I'm going to build the church on because Jesus knew the potential Peter had when he came to Christ. Even after Peter's failure where he denied the Lord three times, Jesus didn't say, I'm done with you. Instead, he recommissioned him. He restored him, and, he, and Peter proved to be who Christ knew he could be as, became, as Peter became a pillar and a leader in the early church. And here we look at Gideon cowering in a hole. Few, if any, would have chosen him to be the deliverer of God's people. But again, God says, I see your potential, just as he sees your potential. Friends, don't let the world label you. Don't let the world tell you you're damaged goods. 
That because of your past failures or mistakes, the way you've walked away from God, the way that you've, you've turned into sin sometimes in your life, God says, I'm not done with you. God didn't reject you. God wants to redeem you. He wants to commission you. He wants to restore you and use you. And if you think, well, Roger, you don't know the mess I've made of my life. There's no way God could want me. Friends, read Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What that verse says is while we were at our worst, while we were in rebellion, while we were the farthest from God, he didn't reject us. Instead, he came to earth, walked with us to ultimately go to the cross and give his life to pay the penalty of death that you and I owe for our sins. He redeemed us, and he wants to use you for his glory. As we're reading about Gideon here, he doesn't look like much. But with God's empowerment, Gideon is going to be transformed and be used by God because of verse 12 says, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. As Gideon is there trying to gather this handful of grain, God shows up. When it says, The Lord is with you, he's literally right there. The text tells us it's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a title that is occasionally used of a messenger angel, but most often it points to what's called a theophany. That means an appearance of God, the pre-incarnate Christ before he appeared in flesh and blood to ultimately die on the cross. And it tells us in verse 13, uh, then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, notice that's in lowercase letters. He says, if the Lord, all capitals, meaning God, if God is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did the Lord, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. As I read this verse, it it made me think of a little girl who was having story time with her mom as she sat on her mother's lap and they were reading the Bible and they were hearing about some of the great people of the past like Moses, Joshua, Daniel, all these heroes of the faith. The little girl looked up and said, Mommy, God was more exciting back then, wasn't he? And this is Gideon. He says, God was more exciting in the past. He delivered the nation from Egypt. God raised up people. He did all these things. And now he says, but where is God? Does God have any miracles left? Can God really deal with the Midianites? Do any of you feel like Gideon and that little girl this morning? Do you think, well, God was more exciting in the past? God did all these great miracles in the past, but look at the world in which we live. The mess it is, the injustice, the darkness, all that's collapsing around us, and we say, what can God do? Does God have any power left for the day in which we live? When we wonder where is God or what's he doing, look at verse 12 because there's our answer. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you is with you. Whether we're talking about Gideon or us in our day, God says to us, I'm right here with you. I'm right here. In the Hebrew text, the word you is in the second person singular form, meaning that God zeroed in on Gideon and he said, Gideon, I'm here with you. Now, Gideon tries to sidestep this as he responds back by using the plural form. He says, why aren't you with us? Aren't you with us? 
And God could say, I've already given you that answer back in verse 1. Y'all are in this situation because you turned from me. You know, the reason and responsibility for the situation they were in was because of their sin. Gideon's saying, God, you've left us. And God says, no, you left me. I've never moved. And as you think of your own life this morning, how many times have you given God the blame? Saying, God, where are you? Why don't you intervene in this situation? Why didn't you help? Why don't you change the world in which we live? Why don't you make bad things good? Why don't you make wrong things right? And God is going to do that all one day. But right now, what God is saying is, the things you are facing are traced to the choices you have made. The consequences we are facing are just like Israel because they turn their back on God. And whether as a, as a country or as individuals, there are times we make bad choices and we blame God for the consequences of our sin. Now, in our passage, uh, the choices that people made led to consequences like enemy occupation. And instead of taking responsibility, they say, God has abandoned us. But the truth of the matter is their, situ- their situation actually shows the opposite. God hasn't abandoned his people. God responds by bringing hardship to drive his people back to himself. The fact that they were suffering actually showed God uh, was, was still there. He loved them. He hadn't given up on them. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, it tells us that God loves us too much to leave us as we are. When we are, when we are in sin, he will come after us. He will discipline us to bring him back to himself. And Israel's suffering was proof of God's love for them. And now God says, it's your choice how you will respond. Will you repent and return to me? Or will you continue on this wrong path and go farther and farther from me? You know, God could have said good riddance. How many times have we seen this cycle now in Judges? Over and over and over, they turn from him. But God in his long-suffering love and his patience never gives up on his people. Verses 14 through 15 tell us, And the Lord looked at him and said, Go this in your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. A moment ago, Gideon said, God, why aren't you doing something? God says, I am. I'm sending you. And Gideon says, oh, hey, God, wrong answer and wrong guy. He says, God, do you realize who I am? He says, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. Do you know what the name Manasseh means? Forgettable. Literally, forgettable. The the names of the 12 tribes are the sons, remember? The, The children, the descendants that were raised up. And as Manasseh came along, he was kind of mixed in the middle of all the children. And the parents were like, ah, Manasseh, you're forgettable, right? So he says, I'm from the tribe of the forgotten. And he says, in this forgotten tribe, we are the littlest, the least powerful family of all the families. And he says, to boot, I'm the youngest in the family. So he says, my family is the least of the forgettables. I'm the youngest of the least of the families. What can you really do through me? Friends, do you have a list like that? Do you have a list like that where you say to God, <laughs> you're kidding, right, God? You want me to do something about this? You want me to step into this situation at school? You want me to be uh, your person in the gap at work? 
You want me to be the one in my, my home or my neighborhood uh, that is standing for you? Well, God, here's, here's my list. Here's all the reasons I can't be used by you. Friends, if you have a list like that, I want you to go back and read through Judges. I want you to remember what we've seen so far. Go to Judges chapter 3 and look at what we saw about Ehud. Remember Ehud, the left-handed deliverer who used his left hand because his right hand was crippled? He had a disability and society wrote him off. You remember Shamgar that we saw at the end of chapter 3, this poor peasant farmer who would be at work out in the field when he would deliver the people as the Philistine raiding parties would come in? Do you remember what we saw the last two weeks with two extraordinary women who were raised up to deliver the nation. And now we come to chapter 6 and we find this guy Gideon, this coward hiding in a hole, just trying to get enough food to last the next day. Gideon was right. What could God do through him? Gideon says, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. And God says, I'm not asking you to do it. You're not going alone, Gideon. He says, I am going with you. You're not going based as what you as Gideon could do. Rather, it's based upon what I as God through you can do. You can look back at verses 12, 14, and 16 and notice what it says. The Lord is with you. Then he says, am I not sending you? And then he says, I will be with you. Friends, those same promises of God, his power and presence is available to you and I today. You remember a previous sermon in this series where we talked about with God's commission comes God's enablement. God will never send you to do something without giving you what you need to do it. In the great commission of Matthew 28, he tells us, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're told in 2 Corinthians, do you not know your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? As a believer in Christ, you are sealed and indwelt by God himself and his power is available to you and I. What God wants us to do is take our eyes off ourselves and he wants us to look up and see him and say, God, I can't do it, but I make myself available to you and through me. You can do all things. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 tells us, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 tells us, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Friends, do you feel weak? That's good. Because then you're dependent upon God. I love the story of a little boy who was in his backyard sandbox and he was, he was playing and he was digging in the dirt and driving his cars and things around and he's building this road through the sandbox and suddenly he kind of hits this hard object. He's not sure what it is so he kind of starts digging and dusting and he finds the edge of a rock and he keeps digging and he uncovers this you know, fairly large sized rock sitting in the middle of his sandbox. The little boy wants it out of the way of his road, so he, he tries to you know, move it, but it's too heavy. He's prying at it. He's trying everything he can. Finally, he puts his back against the side of the sandbox. He uses his feet, and he pushes with all his might, and he manages to, to kind of push it over, scooch it over to the side of the sandbox. 
And he wants it out, so he, he tries to roll it out. He can't get it up. He builds this ramp, and he's trying to roll the rock up, and it keeps falling back and smushing his, his chubby little fingers. And, and finally, out of utter frustration, this little boy just bursts into tears. At the moment the tears are falling, this big shadow falls over him in the sandbox. The little boy looks up with tears streaming down his face, and he sees his father standing there. He didn't know, but his dad had been watching from the kitchen window the whole time. And when he saw this happening and the little boy finally defeated, he comes walking out and he says, Son, uh, why didn't you uh, use all the power you had to get this rock out? He said, Dad, I did. I used all my power. I did everything I could. And the father very gently corrected his son and said, No, son, you didn't use all the power you had. You didn't ask me. And then he reaches down, he picks up the rock, and the father tosses it aside with no effort at all. Friends, are you facing some big rocks this morning? Do you find yourself at the point of tears and utter defeat saying, I've done everything I I can, I've used all the power I have, and, and nothing is changing? May I remind you that Jesus told us that when we as believers pray, we're to go to God and call him Father, Daddy. We're to go to the God who created the world and the universe, the one who possesses all power, and we're to say to him, Daddy, help. Daddy, I need your help in this situation. Daddy, I'm turning to you. Our Father in heaven, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you do that? Are you using all the power that you really have? In Genesis 18, 14, God said to Abraham, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. Luke 1, tells us, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Romans 8, 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as we look at the commissioning of Gideon here in Judges 6.16, we read, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. This is now the third time that God repeats this promise he would be with Gideon. And friends, that means the victory is guaranteed. As God says, I will be with you, God is speaking in the first person form of address. I will be with you, Gideon. Think about some needs you have in your life this morning. Maybe you're saying, Roger, I have these bills I can't meet. I have these uh, things that I'm facing, and I just don't know what I'm going to do. And suddenly, as you're, you're talking to somebody, they pull out their checkbook, and they write you a check, and they write it for $1 million. Now, They rip the check out, they hand it to you, and they say, here's a check for $1 million. Now, if I did that for you this morning, that would be really, really nice. You'd feel really good about it until you got to the bank and you tried to deposit it. (laughs) Because as soon as you put my check for $1 million into the bank, the, (laughs) the teller would laugh at you and say, I'm sorry, there's insufficient funds. This check is no good. But imagine that Warren Buffett wrote you a check for a million dollars. Friends, that check would be good. He could write it for hundreds of millions of dollars because he's a multi-billionaire. And that check would be good. 
As God holds this check out to Gideon saying, I am with you, your, your victory is guaranteed, he looks at the signature line and it says, God. Now Gideon can't say, could you show me a driver's license? Could you give me proof of identification so I know you're really who you say you are? But that's what we see happening in the next verses, because in verses 17 through 19, we read, So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that it is thou who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to thee and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in, he prepared a kid and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour and he put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the oak and he presented them. Now an ephah of flour is 35 pounds of processed flour. Remember Gideon is scrounging for a handful of grain. This was an enormous amount of grain to be offering during a time of famine and scarcity. It was a rich offering even in the best of times. And to boot, he adds a young goat with it. So there's this meat and bread cakes and broth offering that is brought. It's very costly. Uh, it was a great sacrifice during the best of times. But as I said, during scarcity, it was, a, it was an enormous sacrifice. What we see is Gideon is not holding back because he says, I'm dealing with God. And as we're about to see, neither does God hold back because verses 20 through 21 tell us, then the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Foo. Fire shoots up. The, everything is consumed. The angel disappears as well. Verses 22 through 24 tell us, When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in, in Ophrah of the Abizarites. The Bible tells us we can't, as sinful people, stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. And Gideon feels the full weight of his sin when he realizes this was a theophany. This was God talking to me. And he says, I am undone. I'm going to be destroyed. But God did not come to wipe out Gideon. Rather, it was to raise him up. So God says, Shalom. Peace, Gideon, peace. Do not fear. Friends, God wants us to experience his peace in our day as well. Sometimes we think God is hovering in heaven with his finger on the smite button, just waiting to get us. But the Bible tells us in John three seventeen, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. God looked at us as sinful and fallen people. He looked at our broken relationship where sin had separated us. And God said, I want to come and restore that relationship. He laid that cross over the chasm of sin, giving us the bridge that we could walk over and restore our fellowship with God. 
Friends, if you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ, if you're worshiping online with us and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he invites you to come. He says, turn from your sin, turn to me, ask me to be your savior, and I will save you. I have a gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. God said, I died for you. I died to restore the relationship that was broken. Jesus came to save us, and here God says, I came to save my people. Gideon, I am raising you up. You are part of my plan to save my people. There will be peace again in the land as you are used as the deliverer. And Gideon says, the Lord is peace. He builds an altar. There's this rock with this massive burn spot where the fire consumed the offering. He builds a stone altar there as well. Every time Gideon saw that altar or the burn spot on the rock, it would remind him of God's coming. And you may be here this morning and saying, I just need a sign, Roger. I just need some encouragement. I just need to know that God is real. I need to know he's still on the throne, that he is going to do all that he says. Friends, we have something much better than a burn spot on a rock. We have something much better than a pile of rocks that reminds us of who God is. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the cross that reminds us how God left his throne in heaven to come to earth, how he was with us. The name Emmanuel, remember, means God is with us. He came as a baby at Bethlehem to become the Christ at Calvary, to die to save you and me from our sins. We have the cross of Christ to remind us of God's coming, of his great love for us, how he's not done with us, that he didn't come into the world to wipe us out, but to save us and to use us. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, remember, as the Bible tells us, we are sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have God's power and presence within us. He's not left us alone. We're not on our own to do his work or overcome whatever it is we're facing in the world. So as we end today, I want you to think about what you're facing this morning. I want you to think about the struggles that maybe you walked in here with this morning, a relationship of yours that is, that is hurting, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a marriage that is, that is hurting. I want you to think about what you're facing at work or at school or where, where, wherever you work in the, the military base where you're stationed and serve. I want you to think about where you live. I want you to think about the community of San Antonio and beyond as you look at our country and the mess we're in. And as you think about all these things, I want you to remember that God is here with us and that God is powerful and God still does miracles in our day. But he calls on us as his people to turn from our wicked ways, to turn to him and pray. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want you to hold up whatever the needs are that you have this morning, personal or corporate for our country and beyond. Give those to God in prayer, and then I'll close out our time here in a moment. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your great love for us. 
love that you demonstrated while we were yet sinners. You, Jesus, died for us. You came and you took our place, giving your very life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. We thank you, God, that as we look at the cross, it not only shows your great love for us, but it is a reminder to us that you can handle whatever it is that we face. The biggest problem any of us will ever face is that of sin and death, and you, Jesus, conquered it at the cross. You rose from the dead showing you were indeed God, that the check was good. You rose from the dead showing you conquered sin, death, and Satan. So, Lord, whatever the prayers are that were lifted this morning, the private requests that were just be made known to you in prayer, we know, God, you, you, can, you can handle those. And we ask, God, for your help. Not only your help as we go through these things, but, Father, for your peace that passes all understanding. We ask that it would surround those of us who are struggling right now. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for calling on us to be your people, to be light and darkness in this, this dark and dying world that we are in. So would we go forth today, God, in your power, knowing that you are with us. May we trust in you. May we lean on you. We pray these things in the precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.